Hello, and welcome to Citizen Kane Minute, the show that examines the greatest film of all time, five minutes at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining me to discuss minutes 55 to 60 of Citizen Kane is Quizmaster Noah Tarnow. Hi, Noah. Hi, Rob. Great to talk to you again. Great to have you back on one of my shows. We did a Pod Dylan a, a long yes, time ago. Many, many years ago. Many years ago at this point, and a whole pandemic has come yep. and almost gone. Right. Uh, since, <laughs> since knock on wood, time. knock on wood. Knock on wood, knock on wood. Yeah. But we're here, this time we're here to talk about Citizen Kane. And like mm-hmm. I said, we're here to talk about minutes 55 to 60. Uh, before we get to the minutes in question, I got to start <laughs> off. Noah, yes. when did you first see Citizen Kane? Well, like many of your uh, guests, and I'm surprised this hasn't come up yet, before I saw it, it was spo- the ending was spoiled for me by The Homecoming Queen's Got a Gun by Julie Brown. You know that song? <laughs> I was not, I, that sentence did not end the way I thought it was going to end. You don't, you don't, so you don't know that song. Okay. Oh, I do, I do. I just did not expect that was what you were going to say, <laughs> spoil the movie for you. Because <laughs> I totally thought you were going to say The Simpsons, or you know, I was like, no, all right, no. I, there's kind of a couple of normal, usual suspects, and then yeah, you, you made a hard right turn there, Noah. So, okay, maybe, great. maybe it's my age. I just feel like so. Those for your listeners who don't know, Julie Brown was this comedian who was on MTV all the time in the '80s, and she was she was a novelty musician. She released a couple albums. I had such a crush on her. She was so cute. She was very cute. Yeah, and uh, you know. She was pretty funny. She was in the movie Earth Girls Are Easy. Right, right. And um, so this song, which is was a lot funnier then than it is now, is like a story <laughs> song. It was a pre- pretty funny video about it. Story song about the narrator's best friend is the homecoming queen. And in the middle of prom, she pulls out a gun and shoots up the school. And the end of the song, uh, the police shoot her down. And she whispers uh, in the narrator's ear, you know, the narrator says, why did you do it? She says, I did it for Johnny. And the narrator goes, Johnny, who's Johnny? And then she says, it's like that old movie, Citizen Kane, where at the end you find out that Rosebud was a sled, but we'll never find out who Johnny is because, like, she's dead. And that stuck in my head because I must have watched it on a Dr. Demento special I had taped a thousand times. So I first saw the movie, and this just goes to show, like, having the ends, knowing what Rosebud is, I think, does not ruin the movie at all. No. At all. So uh, I first saw it, my high school was a little ahead of its time. This is the early 90s. And we had, when I was in 11th grade, it was the first time the school did it, a media literacy class. Which, by the way, I think should be the only thing that high schools teach right now. Seriously, wow, they were <laughs> ahead of the curve. Holy yeah, they really. Geez. It was an experiment. I give that professor a lot of credit. It was his little baby, and and even at the time, I could tell he was feeling his way around. And he said, "Oh, Citizen Kane's the greatest movie ever. We need to watch it." So we watched it, but because the movie was because the class was you know forty five minutes at a time, three days a week, we watched right, it in right. these forty five minute chunks. Yep. And it didn't really make much of an impression on me. I think I knew this is not the way to watch it. So it kind of came and went. And then I'm pretty sure the next time I saw it was uh, sophomore year, sophomore fall of college. You miss out on so much by not going, by going to art school, Rob. Um, I know, you mentioned that. that. (laughs) I'm starting to think that. So I took my first film class, right? I was a media studies minor and I took my first film, you know, history of film, whatever they called it. And we saw Citizen King in one shot. And I remember really liking it. It didn't like knock me out, but really liking it. But during college, I really got into Orson Welles as a person. And I particularly Mm. got into the War of the Worlds broadcast because I was studying uh, media studies and American history. I was basically a pop culture major. And in fact, I did a project my senior year. I adapt, I found a copy of the War of the Worlds script, radio play script, and I adapted it into a modern version, and I did it as a radio play on the school radio station. Wow. Yeah, we produced it and everything, sound effects and all that. And uh, somewhere I have a cassette tape of that somewhere. 
Oh, I um, gotta hear that sometimes. Yeah, I'll, I'll dig it up maybe and figure out how to play a cassette tape in 2021. <laughs> um, so I really got into Orson Welles and, you know, like many young men, I kind of had a bit of an ego when I was 21 and I'm like, that's it. I'm going to go to New York. I'm moving to New York after college and I'm going to be uh, a golden boy like Orson Welles. And I'm going to, you know, he did War of the Worlds. He was like 22 and he did Kane. How old was he? Kane? 25? 25. 20, 25, 25, right? 25. I, <laughs> I, Jesus. And then I read, I am an entire, from what I had this idea, I am an entire Orson Welles doing Citizen Kane older. Um, so <laughs> I uh, I read this biography of Orson Welles. I should look up what it was called. It was by David Thompson. And Jesus, even even if he hadn't done War of the Worlds for Citizen Kane, he was doing every every Shakespeare lead, everything yep. by the time he was like four. And um, I'm like, I'm going to be that guy. My big dream was like, I, my vow was I'm going to be on Saturday Night Live by the time I'm 30 because I was really into comedy. I'd done improv and stuff like that. So anyway, I moved to New York. I put a poster of Orson Welles on my wall. I... Uh, I was, he was my idol and I watched Citizen Kane probably monthly through my twenties. Wow. Well, that, no, that's an exaggeration. <laughs> probably I, monthly for my first year and then like twice a year. I, that, so. That's still a lot. Yeah. No, that's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And, but as 30 got closer and it was clear I was not going to be on Saturday Night Live and I was really not a golden boy. Damn you, uh, Will Ferrell. I know you've just totally, uh, oh, <laughs> he I took used your to, slot. <laughs> I, yeah, he took my slot. Right. Uh, so it just became clear and you know, I, I was a little, you know, deflated. So, uh, I will tell you, Rob, I watched in preparation for this. I watched this in Kane again last Sunday. And I'm in my mid forties now. And that was probably the first time I watched it through in over 10 years. Holy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And it was always in my mind as one of my favorite movies, you know, and I still remember so much of it, but I just, I don't know. I kind of was, was a little bitter for lack of a better term. So I really drifted away from it as I got older. But again, it's, you know, if you would ask me, what are your favorite movies? If I were to list the top 10, Citizen Kane would always be there. And I always knew I'd come back to it. And man, am I glad I did because that's a really good movie. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Yeah. I, Someone should do a podcast about that. Someone should. I, it's interesting what you said about your teacher introducing it as the greatest yeah. film ever made, because you understand why anybody trying to teach kids about this movie would use that as a shorthand. But yeah. at the same time, you're really doing the movie a disservice because as we've been talking about, yeah. you're really setting expectations and you're kind of giving people a little bit of a grudge against it, as opposed to saying, this movie is highly influential and, you know, all, the, all these other things. But but calling it the greatest film of all time, people yeah. just immediately, their eyes start to kind of narrow a little. And they're just kind of like, ah, really? Yeah. It's homework. It's homework. Yeah, yeah and it becomes yeah. homework. And it's the last thing it should be because no. this is yeah. a really fun movie. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will, I, I will admit, like, and I'm ashamed to admit this, but I, I, I will admit this on a podcast. Like when the Criterion channel first came out, you know, I was like, oh, I subscribed to it immediately. You know, I was like, absolutely. And then I found myself after like the first two months, I think I watched one movie. <laughs> and, and, you know, part it's, like, of it, it's like a gym membership. You know, you yeah, should do it, and, but and, you don't do yeah, it. Yeah. And part of it, part of it was, part of it was the timing. It was a very particularly rough time in my life. And I was, I was coming home from work exhausted 
and it was like I don't want to watch like yeah. a three hour movie yeah. about like, the struggles of a migrant well, people. Right, yeah. You know, it was just like you, I want to watch Jaws, Jaws again. again. Yeah, you yeah, want to watch Jaws again. Yeah, that's me with Pulp Fiction and Fargo and yeah. that thing you do. Yeah, and, and I eventually gave up the membership. And by the way, when you try and do that, they make you feel really bad about it. Of course, they're they like do. they're like, do you want to just give it another month? I'm like, <laughs> look, Criterion. <laughs> Please let me have ownership of my own life. I don't. I'm trust. Me, I'm not going to. So, so you're saying you like bad movies? Is that what yeah, you're saying? Exactly. <laughs> I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I watch Earth Girls are easy. No, it's like it's just so. It's like it's the worst thing for Citizen Kane to have that. Yeah. That albatross around its neck, uh, as like oh, it's the greatest film ever made. So it said in my small way, I'm trying to break that a little, and and maybe somebody that will stumble onto this show and be like. What? Come on. And then we'll talk about how fun it is. So, okay. So that's, so, you know, that's ambitious, Noah. I appreciate yeah. your, your ambition. Putting you. up a poster of Orson Welles. Ah, uh, but it's a lot when you're 22, right? Next yeah. to your hang in there kitty with the cat hanging <laughs> up the thing of those two. Well, it was that, I think you've mentioned it on the show, that image of him as well standing on like a pile yeah, of newspapers. newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty iconic, even though it was clearly a promo shot. It was yeah. not in the movie. Yeah. It's not in the movie. Yeah. 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 So, oh, that's, that's it. So, before we get just yes. one more thing. So you said you became a fan of Wells. You went into his other movies. What do you, I mean, obviously this is a huge question to ask for just like a mm-hmm. quick answer, but like, what are your impressions of the other films? I mean, do you feel they, like they're of a piece of Kane or do you look at it as like, I mean, I'll stop asking. What do you think of his other movies? You know, here's the thing. I, they kind of came and went with me. I watched them out of, Oh, I guess I should watch them. Mm. And I liked touch of evil a lot. I liked Magnificent Ambersons a lot. Sure. I remember, I know I saw Lady of Shanghai and a couple others that made almost no impression on me. Mm-hmm. Because despite the fact that I loved Citizen Kane and I loved Orson Welles, I never really was a movie buff the way you are, the way some of my friends are. Uh, I was, you know, I mean, for me, it was, the well, my way into Welles was, was War of the Worlds. Gotcha. You know, I was more into that. So I actually rewatched Ambersons not long ago and developed a new appreciation for that and said, mm-hmm. you know, I got to watch touch of evil again. Cause also I think maybe that same film class, some film class I took in college, we did a real deep dive into touch of evil. Mm. And so that really grabbed me. Um, but yeah, like that's the thing for me, it was, you know, this is why I got into the trivia business. Cause for me, it was all, it's all surface, you know, mm-hmm. I, there are very few things I do a deep dive into. So I don't know. I mean, clearly the guy was a genius. And I remember you talking about like, would, would this movie be as highly regarded if Wells had had a half dozen almost canes, you know? Yeah. It's just the fact that this was his one, you know, thing he took ownership of. Everything else was meddled meddled with by the studios. Uh, So I don't know. They, those movies kind of came and went in my mind. And maybe if I were to go back to them now, and I kind of feel more impetus to do that than I did two weeks ago before I watched Kane again, uh, I might, I might be a little more into them. So Thank you. You gave me gave me something to do on vacation. Watch Touch of Evil again. <laughs> All right. Well, when I do Touch of Evil minute, you can come on. And Touch of Evil. See, Touch that would be minute. really interesting. Yeah. Charlton <laughs> Heston minute. It's just Charlton Heston movies. That would, whoa, boy, that would be that's a that's a project. Well, uh, well Plan, <laughs> Planet of the Apes is one is is in my top ten with Citizen Kane, so I'd be up for that. That's Planet of the Apes minute would be good. Yeah. Well, that, that show exists, so we can go in. And Does it really? It. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's oh. Planet of the Apes minute. Yes. Yeah, I I didn't know about that. I'm not surprised. All right. They've been doing all the movies. They've been doing all the movies. So I recommend, you might want to cut this out. I recommend, I forget her name, but she's been doing um, Rosemary's Baby 666, six minutes and 66 seconds. Yes, you're familiar with that show too. Yeah, Yeah. and that's one of my favorite movies. So 
big, big <laughs> thumbs up to that. Yeah. It's a fun way of, it really does become addictive. These minutes. Yeah, once you absolutely. start doing one, you're like, Oh my Lord. Sure. So, okay, great. So, all right. So let's talk about these minutes. It's 55 through 60. It's going to start with Leland talking about Susie and it's wait gonna... wait I'm sorry Rob I have to interrupt you you're not going to ask okay. me if Citizen Kane's the greatest movie of all time oh I'm sorry well I thought you said okay do you think it's no. the greatest film of all time well th- there are two questions here there's is it one of my favorites and is it the greatest movie of all right. time now it is one of my favorites sorry just I I, I, I prepared this so I have to I have to share this all right um, I apologize it's fine uh <laughs> I think whether Citizen Kane or any movie is the greatest movie of all time is an unanswerable question Sure. Because I think, um, I imagine that when whoever the first person to declare Citizen Kane the greatest movie of all time, I don't know for sure. I imagine it was like late 50s, early 60s, whenever film criticism became a thing. Yeah. Whenever people were taking film seriously as something worth studying in an academic format. And, but at the time, film was young. You know, as a medium, if, if we're talking 1960, it was 60 years old, 65 years old. Right. Um, and as, you know, Hollywood movies, going to the movies and that thing, it was, it was less. So film was a more discreet world then. Now we are 60 years beyond that. And I think what the definition of a film is has expanded beyond, way beyond that. To the point where what's the greatest film of all time is like asking what's the greatest book of all time? What's the greatest song of all time? You can have opinions on that. Everyone does. Most people do. But you can't really definitively state that. More importantly, I think, especially in recent years, we've realized that there are more types of film. There are more types of stories. Citizen Kane is a really good example of what was basically the default story in Western culture for decades. The rise and fall of an ambitious white guy. And I think we are learning that there are a lot more stories. You know, there were stories about African-Americans, stories about women, but those were niche stories. And academia and general media would not consider those worthy of being considered the greatest thing of all time. And I think now we're realizing not only are there more movies, more stories, there are more types of movies, more stories. So you really can't declare one the greatest. You can say, again, Citizen Kane is your favorite movie of all time. And I think that speaks well of you if you do, because it's mostly true of me. But I just think it's, I got it. There's an N.A. on that question in my opinion. That's, yeah, that's completely fair. You're right. Uh, I mean, that's a great way to think about it. That, yeah, that when Kane was being set into stone as the greatest film, film was 50 years old. Yeah. And uh, now film is 110 years old, you know, around about. And yeah, we appreciate the many more types of stories. And, and as you say, uh, other people weren't considered to be subjects of films. Yes. Uh, at yeah. that time. So, yeah. but I mean, of course, well, of course we're going to talk about rich white guys because what else is there to talk yeah. about? Well, that, <laughs> that's, that's the story of humanity. The, the, the great man theory of history that history yeah. is created by presidents and Kings and all that. And I think most people are like, yeah, that's, it's important, but not the be all end all, you know, and that's fair. That's completely fair. So, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I jumped over that. that question. Oh, perfectly fine. So, okay. So, so we're going to talk about 55 through 60. Yes. It's going to open Leland talking about Susie and it's going to end with uh, Susan singing for Charlie. Mm-hmm. So like I said, we're getting just the tail end of, of Joseph Cotton here uh, as, as he goes into his, uh, his reverie about this. And of course, you know, uh, to this point, the flashbacks have been told sort of first person is that the person. And as we've talked about in the, in the right hand uh, corner of the screen is the person doing the flashback. Well, now we're not, we're not, we're out of that because obviously Leland wasn't around for any of this. 
and he's heard this either from uh, Susie or Charlie or probably both. Both. Now, right at the very beginning, we have this shot of the uh, rain-slicked streets. And, of course, in movies, the streets are always just covered with rain because it photographs so beautifully. You get all the lights. And no matter what, no matter, you know, no matter it's Arizona, there's always going to be rain-slicked <laughs> streets because it just looks so beautiful. Now, again, we already get a touch of, like, Wells's mastery of audio because, of course, it came from radio in that uh, the way he's able to, to piece this together – uh, audibly because we get this shot of the carriage going by yeah, and we hear a splash yeah. and we never see it. No, we don't, we see, don't the see the it. result of this. We don't see the splash in real time because obviously that'd be a lot more complicated to do because you got to get it right on the first take or then you got to clean the actor up and clean the suit up. But I love that Wells is not, he's assuming that via just audio, you're going to get the idea of what just happened. We're going to see the carriage mm-hmm. go by. We hear a splash. And then in a moment, we're going to see the result of the splash. But I love that it's Wells is trusting the audience to piece that together. Because, of course, they would if this was a radio show, you would have to do it. You would have no visual mm-hmm. and you piece it together. But, I, again, it's Wells's experience with audio only that he's able to kind of get around the, having to do this complicated splash effect. And you can just get it in one take because there really is no splashing you know, really going on. I, I I also think it's a way that he's introducing us to Susan's character. The fact that we see her reaction before we know what she's reacting to. You know, the the combination of the toothache in which she's she's speaking kind of you know in a muffled voice. Yeah. The giggling. I think that all kind of sketches. It, it gives us a. It, it, the term I'm going to use. I'm going to come back to this in a bit. Is manic. It gives us kind of a manic first impression of Susan. Which gets at what we're supposed to think about her and and what Kane ends up thinking about her. So I find that very clever that uh, we we see her reaction before we know what it is, and we're like, "Is this woman crazy? What is she laughing? At? What is she looking at? Who is this woman? Why do we care about a random woman laughing?" I, I want to say one thing about the first shot about you see the horse and the cobblestone streets. I feel like it's a cliche that cobblestone streets and horse carriages are nostalgia, the olden days. But it's interesting to think this scene is set in what, like 1914? He runs for governor in 16, right. So the movie comes out in 1941. This is only about 25 years old. So this would be like us watching a movie now that's like, you know, showing us imagery from the (laughs) mid-90s. Hey, remember that Collective Soul album? Um, I'm turning into dust as we speak. (laughs) I know. When that hit me, I'm like, oh, so it would have been in there. At first I thought, oh, it would have been in their living memory. I'm like, living memory? 25 years? That's nothing. <laughs> Pocket full of kryptonite. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I just think, I wonder if that's part of it, like, remembering this time. From our point of view, this is a thousand years ago. From their point of view, this was their childhood. This was their young adult. It does feel like a thousand years ago. Yeah, man. yeah. Um, I actually looked it up. I'm like, all right, is this accurate? When were horse-drawn carriages starting to become unpopular in the streets of New York? When were they not an everyday sight? And I couldn't get a definitive thing, but they're saying like, yeah, teens and 20s. Like, there obviously, you, you, right. s- you still saw them by the Depression, but like, they were still... It, this is accurate. If this is 1914... Yes, it was still the default. Uh, I don't know if they're, you know, her dress was accurate to the time. I'm, I'm going to trust them on that. Mm-hmm, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the other things I, I love about uh, this this shot, and it's very brief, is that we see her coming out of this druggist. Mm-hmm. And boy, the set is elaborate. Yeah. I mean, you look yeah. in the window and there's a thousand bottles and there's a sign. We even see an actor 
playing the druggist in kind of that smock that they used to wear way in the back. He doesn't have a line, but we see him back there. It's a real guy and he's moving around and you look at the set and you realize, well, of course this was not probably anything that they built for citizen Kane. It was probably a standing set that RKO had or some other studio had that they would borrow. And you think about, you know, how much, how many movies were produced back then they were cranking out every, each studio was cranking out dozens, if not hundreds of, of movies and you had these standing sets yeah. that you could use. And I thought, what an incredibly uh, efficient way of making movies. Because yeah. it's like, oh, we need a druggist. And, you know, this druggist set could probably still be used for a 1940s movie, the set in the 40s. Because, you know, drugstores probably look relatively the same across several decades. But I just let you look at, you get such production value uh, out of the standing set. Because, again, if you just t- if you just go and you look through the glass... And you see like seven layers of bric-a-brac in here that probably if they had to build it, they wouldn't have the time and money to do all that. But because RKO probably had a druggist set that they could just move it, you know, sit there and point the camera at, you get such a feeling of realism that you wouldn't get nowadays because nobody's got these back lots full of these buildings anymore. I think this gets at, in the early days of film, how it grew out of theater. Because I remember, you know, like when I did theater in college – we had, you know, the room with all the props and the room with all the couches and chairs and stuff. And if you went to a lot of plays in my college, you'd see that same prop in half a dozen plays. You'd right. see that same uh, couch. There was some couch, we all the, the orange couch we all laughed at, right? And Kane, you know, was one of most people in Hollywood in those days probably came from a theater background. So they were used to, hey, we have the drugstore set, keep it in storeroom. We might not want to dig it out later. It's possible with a real eagle eye, you could find another movie that uses the same drugstore set. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, hey, that's the drugstore set from Citizen Kane, which you certainly (laughs) can do if you see multiple shows by a theater company, whether it was the professional or semi-professional ones Kane worked with or, you know, the one at a typical college, something like that. So, yeah, I think that really gets at one way that film was still grounded in the world of theater back then. In a way, it's completely, you know, lost all moorings from by now. Yeah. The uh, the Grand Staircase in uh, the Magnificent Amberson's home uh, reappears in Val Luton's uh, The Seventh Victim. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. That, I love that movie. Two movies I absolutely love. But, yeah, they just it, they were both RKO productions. So they built this thing and they had it in the storage, just milled it out yeah. and gave it to Val Luton to use. Well, not. Why not? Um, so uh, two geniuses got to use that stairwell. So uh, then we pan over after we see her giggling. And as you mentioned, she's kind of got a slight, you know, her jaw is a little, so she sounds, a, she does sound a little manic. I hadn't really thought about that. But then we pan over and we see Charlie Kane covered in mud. And uh, he's just standing there looking, you know, completely pissed off because he's he's got his suit is full of, his face is in it. I mean, yeah. He looks uh, silly. He looks silly and sheepish. It's a look that I really don't know if we see on Kane's face at any other point in the movie. Yeah. Um, maybe we do, but I, it doesn't occur to me. Yeah. He, he's not, he's, and he looks, he looks like he's got a harumphing. He's got this, you know, okay. So then she walks by and, uh, and then I love, he's like, what's the matter with you? You know, what's yeah. it? And she's like, true Frank. What? True Frank. <laughs> I like enjoy that. And then she even goes like, Oh, ow. And by the, just, we know how awful dentistry was back then. Like it just makes me shudder to yeah. think of like what they did for toothaches back then. It was like, well, let's just rip it out, you know, <laughs> or jam a needle in there and maybe that'll yeah. work or something. Just like, Oh, and of course, Susan Oliver, uh, is, is not, 
is Susan Alexander. Alexander, Alexander. Keep yeah. doing that. Susan, Alex- okay. Susan Alexander. She's not wealthy. No. So, I mean, Charlie Kane probably had access to really nice uh, dental care. Uh, but, I mean, she's probably, the druggist probably just gave her like a strong, you know, uh, liquor or something here. Yeah. Yeah, oil of something. Of yeah, some oil, sort. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 So the, so uh, they start to talk and she talks about that she's got the toothache. And I love that he points at her with his cane yeah. a little bit. He's just kind of, you know, he's very officious. And then she chuckles at him again. And, you know, initially he seems insulted. But then the fact that she kind of. She doesn't seem intimidated by him, and she mm. is not afraid to continue to kind of giggle at him. You can see already that he's starting to be a little charmed by her. And, of course, yeah. you know, people that go through their lives like Kane does, where they're having their ass kissed all the time, and they're surrounded by flunkies, and their friends are really only people that they are, have on the payroll. Uh, it's got to be nice to meet somebody who cuts through that. And is just being genuine. And of course, later on in the scene, we'll talk about that, how he realizes that how genuine she is. But it, it, again, it's, it's a sweet. Kane doesn't have a lot of genuine interactions in this movie. Uh, yeah. But this, this moment at least is genuine where he, she, he seems to like her. And then she mm. expresses kindness towards him about coming back to her parlor to, to, to clean, clean himself up. It's a, it's, it's a nice little moment. Of course, she, we see that, uh, like she walks like another foot and then do we get to her apartment? Cause probably the yeah. set probably ends like one more storefront. Yeah. She down. lives next door to the pharmacy. How convenient. How convenient. Yeah. Uh, so here's the thing. I think your interpretation accords with, I, I read some criticisms specifically of this scene online and they're like, she represents innocence to him. And of course, you know, not to jump ahead too much, but he's, he's on his way to revisit his childhood. Yep. And, um, she represents innocence and charming and all that, but I couldn't help but watch the scene and, and have an interpretation that just kind of went away from that. I think she's really, really hitting on him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that line where she says, she says, do you want to come up for some hot water? She says, I could get you some mm, hot water. Very coy. Very coy. I mean, I think she's really coming on to him. I think it's <laughs> very sexual. And I think he doesn't react. I mean, I'll go with you there. He's a little charmed, but I don't think he's turned on by her. I mean, maybe he is. I'd be curious if someone else had a different interpretation, but he's like, yes, thank you. Thank you, young lady. I'll go up because I look like a mess. Why not? But I think she comes on as really seductive. And I actually think that continues as the scene goes on. And even beyond that, I think the omniscient narrator, you know, Wells, as opposed to Kane, is what we're going to get to a moment where I really think there are sexual undertones to the scene to the point where, I mean, maybe they weren't as obvious to viewers in 1941, but I almost feel like this scene is by 1941 standards risque. Um, and look, maybe this is something about my taste in women that I find this as a sex to be a sexual come on, <laughs> but um, the way she says, I could get, do you want some hot water? I could get you some. And she pauses and looks at him hot water. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. I just, I can't see that another way. I mean, maybe it's not a full, she's not playing in the full seduction scene, but she's definitely like, this guy's powerful. Maybe I can have a good time. Or at the very least, you know, charm him enough to, to get something out of it. Right. Hmm. So I give her more agency than people seem to seem to have here. So that's my read of it. But, all you know, right. your mileage may vary. Yeah, that's really, all right, it's really interesting. Um, so the, she, she leads him into mm-hmm. uh, her place. And by the way, we do, we talked about this in the very first episode of the show where when we get those zoom ins on Xanadu and the one light, the one window that has a light in it is always in the same part of the screen 
no matter what the fade in is. It's always in that spot. And he well does that kind of again here because when Susan walks into um, her the doorway of her apartment, it's draped in shadow, and then there's a fade, and we are then we there's a fade out mm-hmm. and then a fade in, and we fade into her apartment. The doorway is once again in the same location. This yeah. is a different doorway because yeah. now it's the doorway from the hall to her place, but the doorway is in the same screen location as it was yeah. in the previous shot. It's I, about I didn't notice that. I yeah, it's about thirty three percent of the way over from the left. And, and by the way, and by the way, until they go into her building, that whole scene is one in, uninterrupted shot. That's we right. have not cut since we left Leland, you know, in the visor in the nursing home. Uh, I mean, that's a hallmark of this movie throughout, but it's it's just stunning when you step back and think about that. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we, the only light coming uh, is from the uh, the apartment, and then Kane shuts the door. Yes, uh, and of course, then there's this zoom in, and for a good one beat, two beat, the screen is completely pitch black. There is no light coming on, and then we see Susan with in this big close up, open it up, and she talks yeah. about how the landlady doesn't like. Uh, a single woman like her having strange men over with gentlemen callers, gentlemen callers uh, with the door not open. And again, that's such an antiquated idea that somehow your landlord is the arbiter of your morality. But of course that's what women had to live with. And this is, this is where I think the omniscient narrator is, is moving the story into a sexual direction. Hmm. First of all, I'm not clear why he's closing the door because he still doesn't seem charmed he still doesn't seem to be putting on any kind of seduction scene or any kind of even charming it's still a transactional thing thank you for your hot water you're being kind to me so it's not clear why he closes the door he closes the door we see the door and we hear hey (laughs) and you could almost interpret it as all right door's closed i'm making my move i mean unfortunately this happened a lot thank you for inviting me up that is the invitation for me to you know molest you and she opens the door and it's almost like a swerve. He didn't grab her. She's just jumping to that. I'm breaking the rules because I'm a good girl, you know, or I follow the rules. So don't break the rules on me. Again, I really see that there's, there's some kind of um, romantic, if not from the missionary or maybe even from the character, like she's hmm. playing coy with him, the hay thing. Uh, I don't know. I could be off, but I definitely read that that way. Okay. And again, I'm curious why he closed the door. Why do you think he closed the door? I took it just as a general privacy, just uh, because. Why do they, they need privacy? Well, why does anybody, I mean, you know, I, why do I close the apartment door to the hallway? Because I don't want random people walking by. All right. All right. You know, all that right. kind of yeah. thing. To me, it's because that's not her apartment. The outer part is the hallway. Yes. Yeah. So you could have random people. But you're right. There, 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 there obviously is some modes of seduction here, even though, as we'll see in a moment, it's very childlike uh, in some ways because of some <laughs> yes. of the stuff that he does to entertain her. Um, and then we get this shot of her in a mirror yes. uh, sitting down and she's looking yes. up at him. And there's a slightly sexual kind of uh, angling there of yeah. she's in a kind of a supine kind of pose while he's standing up. And it's at this moment we get introduced to a piece of bric-a-brac yes. that, uh, you know, you don't know to look for. And then until you know what it is, the snow globe. We the see snow globe. sitting on the left-hand side of her dresser is the infamous snow globe that we will see early we saw early on in the movie and it's and it's, it's easy to miss it's i'm sure a yeah, lot of viewers, a million things yeah i'm a lot of viewers who saw it at the beginning of the movie maybe they're even re-watching it knew about saw it again at the end of the movie did not know it was in that scene yeah that's right that's right it's not called out 
Right. It's not like he picks it up or anything or looks at it. We just realize this will become important to him later on. So then he starts to entertain her by doing the thing where he's wiggling his ears. Yeah. And she's giggling at that. And then we fade to where he's doing uh, hand uh, shadow puppets. He's making a chicken with his hand. And Roger Ebert mentions this in his commentary track. I'm stealing a lot from it because it was Roger Ebert. But it was like, (laughs) this movie features every conceivable manner of projecting light and shadow onto Ah. the surface. Every kind of thing imaginable, even somebody putting their hands in front of a light and making a chicken with their hand. I mean, that's, that's how far (laughs) Wells goes. Shadow puppets. Shadow puppets. I want to get back to that, that shot, seeing her in the mirror where we see the snow globe. And we also see a lot of the brick and brack, you know, women's makeup stuff that I might not even recognize, you know, if I did wear makeup now, uh, old fashioned stuff, but you also see photos of her as a child, presumably her as a child, you see childhood photos. So this scene that is really framed as Kane rediscovering his childhood, his innocence, not really framed, it's called out pretty heavily in a few lines. I find it very significant we're seeing her in reflection surrounded by the childhood. I don't know exactly how to interpret that, but, you know, knowing Wells and knowing this movie, there's got to be some significance to that. Why are we seeing her in reflection? Why is her reflection bordered by memories of childhood, including the snow globe? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the exact thing is. Hmm. And in that shot, you see him melting. It becomes, to my mind, less transactional. He starts to make her laugh. And actually, right before it fades to the shadow puppets, uh, he's made her laugh. And he says, that's it. <laughs> Which actually, to be honest with you, I found to be not a great piece of sound design. It, it felt a little tacked on. It sounded a little tacked on to me. And it sounded hmm. a little sudden that he's like now happy and making her laugh, bringing the comedy. Um, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. If, if we're going to, I mean, we're here to read too much into any given scene. I would, <laughs> uh, the, the, the idea, I mean, part of it is just making it look realistic is just that that's what her apartment would look like. Would it be all this? Right. But I also, we don't really know anything about Susan before this. And we really don't ever learn anything because the minute she meets Charlie yeah. Kane, her life is completely washed yeah. away by him. And it's like, well, this is a woman that had family and friends mm-hmm. and presumably hopes and dreams. She even talks about it. She wanted, you know, she talked about being a singer. She does mention her mother. All of that goes out the door the minute she meets. And, you know, it's an initial nice meeting. Like I said, I mean, there might be the sexual overtones. You could say maybe she is trying to seduce him a little bit. But, but genuinely, they seem to be having a good time. And it's all going to get washed away because he doesn't know how to interact with people outside of just taking over their lives. Yeah. She becomes an appendage to him. Yeah. That that gets at something that really occurred to me in this. And I'm surprised I couldn't find any other reference to this online. So I view this scene and I view Susan Alexander, at least in this scene as um, I'm going to introduce a bit of a a controversial term. I'm sure you know it. Uh, You know, the term, the manic pixie dream girl. Sure. Yeah. So for those who don't know, it was coined in the early 2000s by a film critic for the Onions AV Club, Nathan Rabin. And I think he was referring to Kirsten Dunst's character in Elizabeth Town. And the way he described it is it's, it's become this stock movie character, which is uh, a woman who, quote, exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. <laughs> And it became a stock thing. Uh, some people don't like the term. They think, they think it's reductive and sexist. I think it's somewhat useful. Um, and I watched this and I'm like, it's possible that she is 
a prototype. I mean, there are ways that Susan Alexander isn't because you do see she has an internal life. You see it in the earlier scene when you meet her and you see it in the later scenes. But in this scene, she really just, she's this, again, manic at the beginning. What is she laughing at? She's crazy. She's got this funny voice that she becomes just this appendage to him. She's very innocent and girl-like. We'll see that in a few lines where she says things like, gee, mister, you know a lot of tricks. Are you a magician? I'm awful ignorant, but I guess you caught on to that. Like she just becomes this, this pixie-like character that just flits in and teaches Kane, the broodingly, the brooding protagonist, to enjoy life again, to embrace life again, to embrace innocence. And I think part of the genius of this movie is that it makes the point that like, nope, she's a real human being. She has her own life. She has her own intentions. She has her own emotions. She can get depressed. She can become an alcoholic. And that by becoming the appendage to him, she is ruined. So I, I'm surprised no one ever said, hey, maybe Susan Alexander is a very early manic pixie dream girl. They, they say Catherine Hepburn and bringing up baby is the first manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> Although I think she's got more agency than that. Yeah, um, yeah. I love that movie. So I don't know. I started thinking like, is she the first one of these? Or is she almost a deconstruction of the character before the character existed? It really, it really called out to me, this interpretation. And uh, God, it made me love the movie even more, like how deep it can be. It could could deconstruct an archetype 60 years before it existed. (laughs) Orson was really ahead of the curve. Yeah, Yeah. I'd never really thought of her like that. But now that you say it, it does have a little bit of that kind of feel to it that it's like, oh, this wandering free spirit. Yeah. It's going to, that's going to humanize Charlie. But yeah. again, it's, it's got such a, in, in those movies, like Garden State. Garden you know, State. That, that's the big I, one. Yeah. Movie, I, I love that movie. I have to really, remember. you know, yeah, Zach Braff was my best friend in middle school. Okay, so, we have a whole, that's a whole other Garden, show. Garden got, State no. is, I resist, again, the bitterness is my 20s. I wasn't going to become famous. I resisted watching Garden State because I didn't want to see my best friend who I had a falling out with when I was 13 make a movie about growing up in our town. I didn't want to see that. <laughs> wow. I remember people like, are you going to go see Garden State? I'm like, why would I do that? Like, wow. <laughs> the last time I talked to Zach Braff, we were trying to beat each other up. We were 13. But oh I've since watched it. It's right. long. We, we actually had a drink a few years ago. It was very nice. I'm crossing off Garden State Minute on my list here. <laughs> shows no, I watched. Shows. I think I finally watched it five years ago, and it was. I didn't love it, but anyway, I I, I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I yeah. liked it at the time. But yeah. she, but but Natalie Portman oh, in the movie is totally, totally, totally a manic pixie yeah. dream girl. Yeah. But but the, the in those movies, the guy is transformed into a better person. So the mm-hmm. the, the the manic the uh, MP. DG right. in that in that sense is is yes she is a a functionary in here this is more the cautionary tale because if Susan is the manic pixie dream curl she gets swallowed up yes uh, it's not yeah. you know she doesn't she doesn't teach Charlie to be a better person he just envelops her and yeah. it basically spits her out because of course we it saw her in the her. beginning of the movie she's a bitter alcoholic yeah so it's like geez had only that stupid horse not hit the puddle at that right moment. None of this yeah. would have happened to her. Yeah. So nah, he um, would have found another young woman. To use well, that is true. Um, now I do love, you mentioned the line where she says, are you a magician? Which yeah. of course allows Charlie to respond. I'm not a magician, which of course, one of the great ironic lines for Orson Welles ever to say, because he was a magician. He loved magic. I mean, he, yeah. you know, he absolutely was. I mean, it reminds me there, uh, Ricky Jay, the late great Ricky yeah. Jay has that same line in Mystery Men because he plays a I PR guy. Yeah, I forgot he, that. Uh, yeah, he's um 
Greg Kinnear's Captain yeah. Fantastic, or whatever the, yeah. his character's name. Yeah. He plays that guy's PR, and he Greg Kinnear kind of gives uh, gives Ricky J some grief about not lining up a sponsor, and he goes, "Hey, I'm not a magician." Yeah, and I'm like, "Oh, that, okay, that's just clearly dining out on one of the great all time magicians saying I'm not a magician." But I just loved Orson Welles saying, "I'm not a magician." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, of course you are. You're that. You're that literally and figuratively." And so they they continue to talk, and and then this scene is the, a, a huge reveal. And I will admit, the first, I don't know, two, three times I think I saw Citizen Kane, I missed it, or it, maybe didn't miss it. I heard it, but it didn't resonate with me. Where he talks about where he was going, and he says, yeah. "I was on my way to the Western Manhattan warehouse yeah. in search of my youth." Yeah, and you realize. Yeah, maybe the rest of this movie would not have yes. happened yes. had he made it there. Yes, I watched this movie with a friend on Sunday, and she literally asked that question. She said, "Don't you think he would have been better off if he had gone to the warehouse instead?" Just gotten there, he he would have found Rosebud. Would have found and you know, calmed down some some demons in his mind. You know, maybe made peace with the memories of his childhood, or made peace with the memory of his mother. I mean, he explicitly says that's what he's trying to do there. Yep. There's a moment in this, I don't know if I've skipped ahead, where he asks her what she does for a living. And first of all, she says, I sell sheet, I'm in charge of sheet music at Siegelman's. The subtitles say Seligman's. And I even found a script online that says Seligman's. Hmm. And I was trying to figure out if that was a real place, just because I'm that kind of New York nerd. Like, (laughs) yeah, oh, were they referencing an actual store that sold sheet music in the early 20th century? And this moment, there's a few moments here, but this moment, she says, I'm in charge of the sheet music at Siegelman's. And he said, he sort of just repeats, he goes, charge of the sheep. Is that what you want to do? Mm-hmm. And that moment where Wells repeats charge of the sheep is so telling about Charlie Kane, really most fabulously rich people as characters. It's like that never occurred to him that that's a job someone can have. Yeah. <laughs> People who are so rich and powerful, they interact with service people, but they never think of them as human beings. But now Kane has been put in this, for him, novel position of regarding a shop girl, a 21-year-old working girl in the 19-teens, as a human being and not an appendage to his life and not someone, a drone you interact with. And he literally is like, this is a job? This is a profession? I thought the only professions were doctor, lawyer, and, you know, president of Venezuela. Um, <laughs> So then he immediately says, is that what you want to do? Like, of course, that's not what she wants to do, especially in those days where a woman like that is, you know, she's working in a shop until she finds her husband, you know, give her two years. She'll be a spinster. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I just found that so telling of a way looking into the mind of a fabulously wealthy person who finds themselves in an interaction that never occurred to them. The details of this movie are just so great. Yeah, and the, and the wheels are already turning in his head. Yeah. Like, oh, well, well, I could do this for somebody. Oh. I could do something for you. And then the, the bigger moment's coming up in a minute, but I'm sure you'll get to it. Right. In and my so, mind, the bigger moment. I'll, I'll call it out if you do. All right, fair enough. So they, yeah, they, talk, about, they talk about mothers, mm-hmm. and uh, he even has the line about, well, you know what mothers are like. Yes. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, Yes, he does, uh, but it's you can take that kind of, uh, you know, multiple different ways. Obviously, I mean, we never really find out. Does Charlie regard his mother in a good, in a nice way, or is he bitter? Is he bitter about yeah. her? Because well, Leland, she, Leland says he loves her. Leland says he never loved anyone but himself and probably his mother. 
I believe right. in, in the previous scene. So in Leland's mind, he did love his mother, but he could be wrong. He could be wrong about that. Yeah. I mean, you could argue on the one hand that you could be really angry at your mother, that you feel like that she sort of abandoned <laughs> yes. you, Bye. Handed you, yeah. handed you off to this, <laughs> to this Thatcher this, of all people, this stiff, you know, <laughs> handed you off to Scrooge practically <laughs> to go live. Uh, but yeah. yet maybe, but at the same time, of course, if he has such beautiful, such overwhelming reverie for his simple life back in Colorado, you're thinking, no, maybe he really does miss the mother. He misses the mother. He misses Rosebud. He misses back when his life was simple. Um, and that's, a, you know, again, it's, it's, it's just, it, this is one of those scenes that, like I said, when I watched the movie the first couple of times, just didn't land with me as much as other stuff, because partly I was younger and I was in love with all the camera tricks and all the fun, you know, uh, stuff that he was doing. And here, it's a really simple scene of just these two, you know, close-ups of of the two actors going back and forth. It's much more of a traditional kind of way of telling a story of just close-up, back up, back up, back and forth, back and forth. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is one of the very few moments in the movie that you see close-ups like that. Yeah, this movie is not... It's mostly mid shots and far away shots. Yeah. Not a lot of yeah. close ups. And and they're in this. I mean, I don't know if they use this term at the time. I don't know if it technically is accurate. But to my mind, it's in soft focus. They look yeah. very dreamy. You know, this is now you get the romance. He's clearly, if not romantically charmed by her, charmed by her in these moments. The smile on his face looks as genuine as any smile you've ever seen on Charles Foster Kane's face. Yeah. Um, really putting us in this dream world. And my God, that actress is gorgeous in these scenes. Just gorgeous what a beautiful woman oh my yeah God. yeah and right i said he does give her the soft focus and we don't yeah. have that in the early scenes where she's in the bar it's you know very harsh lighting and she's got that horrible makeup on and she looks terrible and she's an alcoholic yeah an alcoholic so then they talk about whether you know uh, how the, the how the night is going and uh clearly they're very much suggesting that they're spending the night together uh because the way uh, he says it yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's a foregone conclusion. There's definitely, like I said, the romantic thing. But, you know, as much as I'd see a sexual come on in that, I, I, they might put it off till later, you know. Um, I actually read something interesting online that said when the reveal happens, when, you know, later to jump ahead, when, when Geddes says, oh, he's in a love nest with this woman, <laughs> that it says it's not confirmed whether their relationship is sexual, which why wouldn't it be? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can't. Yeah. I... <laughs> but... I guess. Uh, I guess I, possible. I, yeah, I, I mean, I always felt like that that moment where they do the soft fade in on him. Now, yeah, I know the next scene is them uh, where she's singing for him. Yeah. So, and they're all, but they're both fully clothed. Obviously, in 1941, they couldn't really suggest otherwise. But I always took it as that. I felt like it was a twin of the scene early on with his wife, where she says, "Oh, it's mm. late," and he goes, "It's early," and it's mm. dot dot dot. I always kind of took it as the same. He doesn't use the same lines. But it's the same kind of to me where it's he he's kind of giving her the look of like mm, okay and then let's go to the parlor yeah so that so to going to the parlor is is a prelude to to intercourse yeah I, that's always how uh, I took uh, it okay and then so, so yeah go ahead I think maybe you skipped over literally my favorite moment in this whole scene. oh wow all right go ahead I, I don't know maybe I'm jumping ahead when he says is that what you want to do and she says well growing up I wanted to be a singer. And you, you see the two of them in profile and you see, Wells is such a good actor. You see his face. If you look, you see his jaw move. And Kane says, what happened to the singing? Hmm. 
this is a, I am charmed by this woman. This woman is going to become my cause. Here is a project. And that is the fulcrum, certainly the fulcrum of Susan Alexander's life. But that is in many ways the fulcrum of Charles Foster Kane's wife, Charles, Charles Foster Kane's life. Until this point, he has gone from success to success for the most part. And now he has found this project. That's it. I'm going to make her a singer. What happened in the singing? Why didn't it happen? You're not going to be a shop girl. You're going to be a singer. And that is the beginning of building the opera house, foisting her on the public, even though she was not really interested in it and not very good at it. And of course, ruining his marriage and ruining his political career. Look at that scene. Wells's jaw shifts. His <laughs> entire manner shifts. What happened to the singing? That's a job I can alight on. That's a project I can have. That's something I could do. I've lost my youth. I, my marriage is down, down the tubes. Uh, life has ceased to have its magic and mystery for me. Now I have a cause. Make this gorgeous, beautiful, delightful character who has utterly charmed me into the world's greatest singer. That is the moment where Charles Foster Kane's life changes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for agreeing with me, Ralph. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, again, he'll even have a line later on where he's talking to the press and he says, we're going to be a great opera singer. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're? yeah. What are we? What's this yeah. we stuff? And yeah, yeah, it's it's almost as if like Kane can't be with someone who is quote unquote just a sheet music saleswoman. No, not at uh, all. Because obviously, you know, he's married to a president's niece. You know, she's of his social station, right? Uh, and so he's meeting this woman, and all the things that he likes about her is that she's simple and she comes from this different background. And yet he's desperately going to try to turn her into yeah. something that fits more in his life, which is the exact not thing, not right thing to do. And I think this gets at our concept of this deflating the man at Pixie Dream Girl 60 years early yep. is that, okay, you're a real person, but I'm going to, uh, well, you're an appendage to me. I'm going to destroy you in making you an appendage to me. Mm-hmm. And it's also a classic narcissist thing. I mean, how many generations and how many cultures has a man abused his children because he, he sees his children as an extension of himself, a way mm-hmm. to redeem his failures. And she's, he's basically going to abuse his girlfriend, later his wife, as a way to redeem himself, to regain some of that lost innocence, to, to be a success in something that hasn't bored him by this point, the way being a newspaper man has, because his supposedly vaunted principles are just completely thrown away <laughs> once he hires yeah. all the guys from the Chronicle. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's really, it's an, it's an amazing moment in my mind. Yeah, it said it, it, it was a scene that I didn't fully appreciate until I, I got older and had some, you know, more interpersonal relationships and saw, yeah. oh no, this is a big, this is a big moment for him. The really, and we're right at the, we're right at the hour mark. We're right at the halfway point of this yeah. movie. And yeah. like I said, the, mm. these minutes are going to end with him sitting in the parlor listening yeah. to Susan sing, and we will find out later on yeah. uh, how good of a singer she actually is. So. <laughs> Uh, so that that's going to wrap up these yeah, these five minutes. I want to add, though, I was very curious what she was singing, and I had to Google around a bit. I believe that's a song from the Barber of Seville. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's confirmation out there. But she says something about Lindor, and when I Googled around, I found like the Italian lyrics to a song from Barber of Seville. So if anyone out there knows for sure what that song is called, please uh, confirm, because I'm like, I, I, there's got to be a way to know. I mean, I'm thinking about how you keep doing on this podcast, every little background character, you're like, and that actor's name is so-and-so. And right. <laughs> the moments you're like, I have no idea who this actor is. <laughs> um, I mean, it's Citizen Kane. Someone out there is is analyzing every 
forget five minutes every five seconds. Yes. So, I wonder uh, do they still make sheet music. They still do that. Is that a thing? Or is that all uh, this, this uh, is the internet now? I, I don't know. So the big legendary sheet music store in New York was the Colony. You know, Colony, like the Colony. yes. Went there a bunch of and, times. Yeah, in the Brill Building, right there on Broadway above Times Square. And uh, it was big news. I think I was still living in New York. I left New York six years ago. It was big news when the Colony finally closed. But I still remember as, you know, into the early 2000s, just going to look around. And of course, they also had bric-a-brac and collectibles and all sorts of fun stuff. It was such a fun store. Yeah, um, I went there a bunch of times to buy uh, Dylan songbooks pre-internet sure. where I needed yeah. lyrics. So I yeah, you need lyrics. Yeah, or when I was trying to learn guitar, I bought an Elvis Costello songbook <laughs> at the Colony. Uh, I mean, they must. I mean, now people learn guitar and drums by, obviously, you can look up tabs online or you can watch tutorials on YouTube. But I feel like, I mean, I'm not, I don't play an instrument, so I don't know. But I feel like that would still have some value. It's just, why do you need a whole store for it? Yeah, right. You could get it at a, at a you probably go to a guitar store and they right. have books there. Or, or why do you need any brick and mortar store anymore? You know, right. Especially, well, especially after a pandemic. That is true. <laughs> By the way, we should say she in her job as the sheet music person. I mean, that is something, you know, completely uh, absorbed by the mists of time because this is, you know, this is an era before uh, mo- a lot of people had any sort of, I mean, they had yeah. electricity. But they didn't have they didn't even have a radio. Right. Uh, certainly right. didn't have a television. And this was back when people for entertainment played music. Yeah. That if was you want to you want to hear a song, you need someone who knows how to play piano. Yeah. You can't, just, I, I, you can't put a song on. Yeah, I remembered hearing that the Cohen brothers talked about that when they were out uh, promoting Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and they were talking about trying to capture a time when music was made by everyone not just professionals is mm-hmm. any any everybody had a parlor with a piano in it and everybody played music to some degree and so that's how much you know people buying song books was how important it was that you had a separate person just doing that that's all her job was was yeah. that was to sell these things so yeah it was big business she was the early version of the hipster at the record store shaming you for for that's liking right for liking the uncool band, you know, That's do you have right. any sheet music by this person? Like <laughs> I, I don't have, no, we don't have that. Get out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just, trying to think like, of who, who the mainstream, you know, dork composer was in 1914. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Do you have like yeah. Irving Berlin or something? <laughs> or Irving Berlin. I think, well, that's much too early for. Irving yeah. Berlin. I think, yeah. I think he but, was but so probably anyway. a teenager by then. Yeah. So anyway, so that's, that's these five minutes. So mm-hmm. Noah, thank you so much for stopping thank by you, the Rob. top citizen Kane with me. This, this was great. This was really fun. Oh yeah. I always enjoy talking mm-hmm. to you. So why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Uh, well, I am uh, all about, uh, my business is called the big quiz thing. We do corporate and private trivia events for any and everyone. Uh, we are just, uh, as many event businesses have been the last year, all virtual, but we are just, uh, getting back to in-person events. So we're doing both and and working on doing hybrid events. I think that's the way things are going to be. So you can learn more about us at bigquizthing.com, hire us for your own corporate or private trivia event. Um, and then in addition to that, I have my own podcast. It's called I Don't Get It, the pop culture get off my lawn cast. I do it with my friend Bill Scurry, who <laughs> knows way more about film than I ever would. And uh, we sort of, we're both mid-40s curmudgeons, and every week we look at something that's happening right now, something that's new, whether it's a singer or a movie or a TV show or a fad. And we decide if we're bitter about it, bitter about being old we decide if it's destroying humanity <laughs> or you know a lot of the times we say this is great we're so happy this exists so we we try to have an open mind we have a lot of fun with that so you can learn about that at i don't i don't get it podcast.com 
And you can follow me on Twitter at Noah Tarno. You can follow Big Quiz Thing on Twitter at Big Quiz Thing. Uh, also Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, probably TikTok, other places soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Outstanding. So of course, mm-hmm. if you uh, want to follow the show, go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. We're always talking Citizen Kane over on Twitter at CK Minute. And then if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name checked on the show of your choice. So big thanks to Slick for his slash her support of Citizen Game Minute. I very much appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Come back next week for more Citizen Kane Minute. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself.